tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll finish up chapter 4 before we move on to chapter 5. And I, I will tell you we're getting to the meat of the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we've got some topics coming up here in the next couple of weeks that are going to challenge you, want to encourage you. We're going to deal with human sexuality the next couple of next couple of studies as we deal with dealing with sin, what it looks like, why the church ought not to be engaged in any of it. And so uh, get ready, invite your friends out. You want to bring them to church and have them challenged a little bit, have a little bit of a controversial topic that we'll be talking about. Uh, next couple of weeks are going to be good for that. So encourage you to invite, invite somebody out here on Thursday nights. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord, that you have given us, that you might instruct us in righteousness, how to live our lives. And we pray that as we study tonight that you would bless us by sending your Holy Spirit to rightly interpret these things and minister to us. Lord, bless us as we enter in now to a time of study. In Jesus' name, amen. And I am almost well, so thank you for praying. Uh, As we pick up in verse 7 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a subject that is not popular as a conference topic, humility. It's not popular in our culture. It's not popular in our world. It's almost seen as a character flaw if someone is overly humble It's almost as if something's wrong with them, and yet very few things in a practical way more mark the real servant of God than an attitude of humility. And yet we live in a world that feeds on, craves popularity, Uh, even exalts, in essence, pastors who are superstars, rock stars who gain a following. And so the Apostle Paul, now dealing with the situation that was alive in Corinth, that the church had began to pick their pastors and their teachers, not based on the content of their messages, but on their style points, uh, which one had the, you know, best teaching persona, which one was the most popular, instead of which one actually taught the truth, the Apostle Paul now begins to explain to the church how important it is that we pick our leaders based on their content of character in Christ, which should leave them humble. And so it begins in verse 7, and I will tell you these next several verses are some of the most sarcastic found in the entire Bible as the Apostle Paul kind of lays into the church at Corinth. For what makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? And now if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And there's a simple truth here in this opening volley. There is nothing that I can teach you that's going to be of any value whatsoever that I have not received from the Lord. It was a gift. It comes through his word. It's his word that transforms lives. It is not my understanding of psychology or sociology, though I study those things so that I know what's going on in the world. It's not an understanding of history. It's not an understanding of biology or the life sciences. 
It is an understanding of God's word, and God's word has been given to us for instruction, reproof, and correction in righteousness. It's been given to us as a gift. And the word of God translated to God's people is actually what does the work. And so in that sense, every pastor is passing along something that he was given in the first place. It's not new in that sense. And now you can see the sarcasm. You're already full. You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. In other words, you're awfully famous in your own eyes. You've built up the church. You've got it going on. There's lots of things happening. And you're acting as though that is something that you did. Brothers and sisters, anything good that happens here in this church is because of Jesus, because of his word. And yes, he uses people. Yes, he, he takes the things that we offer him as gifts and talents that he's given us, and he uses them for his glory. But make no mistake about where all those things came from. What we have is a gift from God. Life itself is a gift of God. The very breath that comes out of our lungs, I you know, got a firsthand experience this last 10 days or so of realizing that even my breath is a gift from God. And when you can't breathe, when you want to cough all the time, and and you realize that if the Lord were to stop putting his hand upon us, even physically, we wouldn't even be able to do what we're doing tonight. You wouldn't be able to hear without him having created your ears. Your your mind wouldn't be able to, to listen. You wouldn't be able to have cognition. You wouldn't even have understanding were it not for the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, everything you have, everything you are, all that you do, everything that church is and becomes is because of the Lord. It was given to us. It's a gift. And so two things come to mind. Number one, we shouldn't be judging each other to begin with. But secondarily, and, and it illustrates a larger problem in the church. Popularity should be based solely on the fruit that, he, that abounds to the account, not on the one who's speaking the words that maybe are used to, to bring that fruit to fruition. And in this case, there were factions within the church, and they were following certain people, and those pr- people became the focus of the attention instead of the Lord. And this is a tragedy. The church needs to point people to Jesus. We we need to be very mission-centric. Connie and I were talking, actually Nene and Connie and Brandon and Becca and Jimmy and Domi, we had a little meeting yesterday uh, about uh, uh, an event that we had in the fall, Anchored in Love, and as we were talking through it, one of the things that, that came to mind was, does this point people to Christ? Was there a Christ-centered message? Was the gospel preached? Because in considering what we're going to do in this church, the thing that we want to do is make sure that people know Christ and him crucified for the remission of sin. Our goal is not to promote us as a ministry. Our goal is to promote the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
And so no person should stand in the forefront. The Lord Jesus should stand in the forefront. And the fact of the matter is that I, like all pastors, are, are failed and faulty, uh, at times foolish and flawed. Uh, sometimes we see things correctly and other times not so much. I'm sure most of you in this room have had opportunity to have lived long enough to have got to rethink some things that you once thought were true only to find out they were not true. Amen? That maybe as you grow a little bit, you realize you don't know as much as you thought you knew. I'll give you a little secret to help you along your way. If your comparison is Jesus, you will always be second or third or tenth or one hundredth. Just just make Jesus the model. There's a little interchange in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And he says there that a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can never see what's above you. When you look down on people, And when you look down on ministries and you look down on procedures and you just are one of those people that have a negative attitude towards most everything, when you begin to think that you have all the answers, you're looking down. And when you're looking down, most of the time you will not take the time to look up. And it's dangerous because eventually you become the focus of your attention. And that's a bad place to be gazing. In that sense, as Paul will say here, it's kind of time for us to take a nice, healthy reality check. Notice verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You become kings, and, and that without us. How we wish that you had really become kings so that we might be kings with you. He reiterates here in verse 8 something that I think sometimes we get involved in as people, as humankind. As Paul's being sarcastic, as he's kind of saying, look, you, you guys talk like you're all that. You act like you already have everything you need, and yet you're still needy. You're not kings of your own little kingdoms. There's one true king, and he's king over all. And so he's really saying, look, you, you got it wrong here. And so he, he begins kind of this time of speaking into their lives that if they were truly servants of the Most High God, then instead of worrying about who was on top, they'd worry about how they compare to the Lord Jesus. And there's a couple of instances, and you're probably familiar with them, In the gospel narratives, Luke records one, Matthew records one, and Mark records one, but they're all the same basic incident. And there's a time that James and John are hanging out with Jesus, and basically the reality check was this. James and John are going, hey, my mom says I'm the best. And they begin to question Jesus about, you know, hey, when your kingdom comes, can one of us sit on your right and the other one sit on your left? 
And what Jesus says to them is this, and I'm paraphrasing a combination of the recordation of this event in Luke, Matthew, and Mark. But it goes along these lines. Guys, are you willing to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized? Are you actually willing to do what it is that the Son of Man has come to do? And then he says, the Son of Man has not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, if you really want to be great in the kingdom, you need to be the servant of all. And so Paul is saying, while we're busy trying to figure out who's the greatest at the church, or we're trying to figure out who's the most enlightened teacher, we forget that the model of a true person of God is first and foremost a humble servant, one who's willing to do anything at any time for anyone. One who doesn't demand to be served, but is willing to serve anyone. He says, look, if you really want to find someone who's a true leader, you're going to find them serving. They're not going to be needy. They're not going to be wandering around saying, can you do this for me? They will be saying, can I do this for you? He gives them a reality check. You know what? Our world doesn't like that ideal. Our world likes to be served. We, we like to be on the top. And basically, he kind of shatters their own self-image. He talks to them, really, in the, in the sense, in verse 9, notice what he says, for I think that God has displayed us. And then he names who the us is, the apostles. Last as men condemned to death, for we've been made a spectacle to the world, both the angels and men. As the Apostle Paul says that, he's saying, look, if you're thinking that being a pastor, if you're thinking that being a leader in the church is going to get you the glory of man, oh, are you so wrong. It might get you killed, And with the apostles, it did. And in fact, it's interesting to me that the, the two men who were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, guess who the first apostle was to be martyred? It was James, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder. First one to die. Peter would follow, crucified by Nero. John, of course, exiled on the island of Patmos. Paul himself, Andrew, crucified. They were all one at a time. Instead of being famous, they were murdered for their faith. True disciples are willing to suffer. They don't need to be famous in this world. They want to be famous for how they represented the king. What follows is, I suggest that you do not put this on your resume if you're looking for a job. Verse 10, for we are fools for Christ's sake. Notice again the irony. 
but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He says, look, a real servant of God doesn't get the accolades that the world dishes out. I've had the privilege of ministering alongside of some pastors that have pastored churches in very difficult places all over the world, and they've stayed there for decades. And their church never got over 50 people. But they were faithful to those 50 people. And I guarantee you they're very well known in heaven. Nobody here on this earth will probably ever know their name. But Jesus knows their name. The angels know their name. And they were made a spectacle in heaven and on earth because of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And while we're blessed to to have a big footprint in the world, and, and I'm grateful for that, I'm thankful for it. I'm grateful that we can do things like we're doing right now with a team in El Salvador. I'm thankful to the king. What we are doing there is about him. It's about Jesus. It is not about the reputation of this church. It's about the reputation of the king of kings. We want his name to be great. And to that end, I'm willing to be a fool for Christ. I will readily admit that there are times when I am weak. Those that know me well have been able to say that they've walked into my office and seen me sitting in my chair, slumped over with my head in my hands, weeping. Tell you straight up. There are are times when I hear people's stories and it just breaks my heart. There are times when I, I don't have the answer. The Lord hasn't either given it to me or I'm just not smart enough to know it. But there are days when I am weak and I desperately know that I need the Lord Jesus. And without him, I'm not making it another day. Paul's sarcasm. You can almost hear him go, you know, saying to these people that are arguing over who's the the best pastor in Corinth, who's the greatest guy. Oh, I forgot. You guys graduated from We Are Superior University. You know, it's like wazoo. You know, that's it's crazy. I listen to people tout this teacher and tout that teacher. At the end of the day, just tout the Lord Jesus. Now, if somebody ministers to you, great. Praise the Lord. Share that truth. But honor the Lord with how you do it. In verse 11, he goes on. To the present hour, we both hunger and imagine putting this. First, you're dishonored and you're a fool and you're weak. But to this present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed. We're beaten. We're homeless. We labor working with our hands. Now, remember, this is a Greek audience. And above all things, they valued the power of reason, psyche, philosophy, mental acuity. And basically, Paul's saying, we're a bunch of homeless guys. 
and we have nothing. And we're not the sharpest tools in the shed. We labor with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. You see, the character that God's looking for is these things. Being defamed, we entreat. And in case you're missing what that is, when someone mocks you and ridicules you and scorns you, you don't revile back. You actually entreat them. You speak to them in love and say, how can I do better? We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. Throw that on your resume. And yet this is what the Apostle Paul says is greatness in the life of a pastor, someone who wants to be in ministry, someone who wants to do the will of the Lord. And consequently, that trickles down to every last person who is a disciple. And that's going to be very visible in just a moment when we get to verse 14. You see what he's saying here is as you look at these things, there's nothing to be desired. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, of the Son of Man, there is nothing of him that we should desire him. There was nothing in the humanness. Jesus did not look like Max von Sydow in the greatest story ever told. He did not have flowing blonde locks. He did not have piercing blue eyes. He was normal in every way, shape, or form. He was not overly tall. We don't know exactly what he looked like. So for all of you that have pictures of Jesus on your wall, I can pretty much guarantee you that nobody knows what he looks like and what you have is not him. Because scripture says there was nothing that you would look at him and go, that's the Messiah. He wasn't tall. He wasn't handsome. He was just a normal guy. And there's a reason for that. Because God didn't want people flocking to someone who was just a good-looking person. He was just a, a fine orator. It's believed through church history, plenty the younger writing that the Apostle Paul was under five feet tall and kind of short and stocky. He was bald. He had weeping eyes from a disease. It's a reason that he wrote with such big letters as he signed some of his letters. He wasn't one of those guys you go, wow, what a gifted speaker. You're like, him? Seriously? That's Paul? But here's the deal. The words that came out of his mouth were straight from God's ears. God spoke them into his life. It's like, here here it is. Just tell him what I'm telling you. Paul's credentials were that he was homeless, poorly clothed, beat up, beat down, partially unemployed, trash talk, dirty, smelly, and downright disheveled. In other words, he's saying, look, we may be human rubbish. That's what off-scouring means, by the way. We might be trash as far as the world is concerned, but we're loved of God and mightily used of him. And that's what we want. That's what we want people to say. 
And to that end, we're to follow those kinds of leaders. And Paul's not trying to shame this group that he's speaking to either. And I want to be really, really careful that uh, you don't hear that in my voice or my tone. This was not to shame anyone. This was to bring them to the realization that they were loved of God. And if you bring people to the realization that they're loved of God, you have to warn them of dangerous things. You can't leave people in the wrong condition. One of the most difficult things about being in ministry, being a pastor in general, is that when you have the truth of God, you have his word, and you know what it says, you are obligated to tell people the truth of what it says, which means you're going to offend 90% of all humankind at some point in time. It's going to happen. Because every one of our sacred cows is dealt with in Scripture. Our bad attitudes, our propensity towards gossip, our lackadaisicalness, our laziness, things like gluttony. Do a message on gluttony sometimes, see how many people show up. I'd like to talk to all of you gluttons tonight. And yet, how many of us overeat? You see, things get under our skin because God's correcting our behavior. He's saying, look, I need to tell you this because I love you. You think God didn't know about diabetes, heart disease? And I'm just hovering here for a moment. So the all-wise God, before the American Heart Association, understood that the number one contributing factor to heart disease and diabetes is being overweight, said, you know, you really shouldn't be gluttons. So you see, if you love people, you tell them the truth because it's the best thing for them. But it makes people really mad. Seriously? You're going to say that? to Well, yeah, I kind of need to. I hope I can do it in love. Because God loves us. So wait until we get to some of the rest of the things here in 1 Corinthians. I'll give you a little heads up. Bring your friends if they've got problems. I'll take the blows. You can just love on them. Notice what he says. I do not write these things to shame you. He's not trying to make anybody upset. He's not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. You're not trying to unduly pick on anyone. But as my beloved children, I warn you. You know, as parents, and you parents better say amen, we tell our children things they don't want to hear. Amen? If you love them, if you love them, you will tell them things they don't want to hear. It's part of your job description. Amen? You've got to tell them things they don't want to hear. And they stomp their feet, and they get that look on their face like, I can't believe you said that to me. But because you love them, you warn them. 
You go, look, this will not go good for you. That money in the bank stacked on the counter, that is not your money. You cannot put it in your pocket. Not, well, they won't miss a little bit of it. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. And I want to speak just a moment for the difference between you listening on the radio, you listening to a podcast, you watching a, a blog somewhere, a, a V-blog, or you picking up a book someplace and me standing in the pulpit speaking to you, and you can come see me. There is a huge difference because you have no accountability to a blog. You have zero accountability to a podcast. But when you are sitting in church with a bunch of brothers and sisters who all heard the same thing, and that same thing happens to be truth from God's word, there is accountability to it. And that accountability is immensely important in the growth of the body of Christ. One of the reasons the church is failing right now is because too many people think that Facebook is a replacement for the body of Christ gathering together to break bread and to study God's word. It is not. The gathering together of the saints is an important part of the function of church. That's why we do what we do the way we do it. Because you are sitting next to people right now who can look you in the eye and say, didn't Pastor Jeff say that? And so in that sense, he's making the case between his spiritual father, someone who is willing to tell you what you maybe don't want to hear, and then back it up by saying, well, if you want to talk about it, come to my office. And someone who blurts something out on the internet who will never see you. Who doesn't care one iota what happens in your family. And will not be burying your children when you don't tell them the truth. So make sure that you understand the difference between those things. Because while listening to the radio can be good. And watching podcasts or listening to them can be good. There is no substitute for gathering together with the body of Christ, keeping one another accountable to the word of God. Amen? Amen. Okay. Amen. Amen. So he says, you can have 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers. You don't actually have a lot of people that care about you. Make sure that you have somebody in your life that cares about you as a person as a family, as a son, as a daughter, as a husband, as a wife. Massively important. When I hear, when people tell me I don't go to church because I don't like church, that frightens me. Because it usually means that their spiritual life is about this deep. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel, and therefore... I urge you to imitate me. One of the greatest and most difficult things simultaneously about being a pastor is that people are watching how you live your life. 
How do you actually live out the things that you teach from the pulpit, Pastor Jeff? How is it that those things which you teach as truth, how do you respond to those things? That's called being an example. It's called being a pattern. It's called being a blueprint that people can follow. It's called being followable. Someone can follow how you live your life, what you say, how you act. And to that end, Paul basically says, it's the reason that I've sent Timothy to you. I want you to imitate him. I I want you to look at the character that he has. I want you to take take a look at the way he lives his life, and you can follow the way he lives his life. And this is so important for us as the church. It's not just for me as a pastor or the pastoral staff or the staff of the church to live like this. This is the best way that we all can have an impact in the world for the cause of Christ is by being doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Too many Christians actually live lives of hypocrisy. They say one thing, they do something else. They go to church and hear a truth, but that truth never makes it back home with them. Instead of living out that truth, they just acknowledge that it's true and then go about living falsehood. That is not an example to anyone. And the reason that we have so many messed up children in the church is because the parents hear a truth, but they don't live it at home. And so now you have a conflicted child. The child goes, well, which one is it? Here's what I heard, and here's what I read, and here's what you do. One of the secrets to great parenting is please don't be a hypocrite. If you're a Christian parent, you have an obligation to live your life before the Lord so that your children don't see hypocrisy. You need to be a blueprint they can follow. I think some of you in, in this room are probably very gifted in your in your employment in your skill in the perhaps some profession that you possess there are some of us in here that are contractors or or perhaps builders by trade and i can tell you one of the things that makes or breaks every project is the blueprints if the blueprints are wrong the job is going to be wrong And invariably, as we're building large-scale projects, one of the things that we find out is if the blueprints are wrong because we get someplace and wall A does not line up with wall B. And so the blueprint has to be changed. There is no change in the blueprint of Christ. There's no change in the Word of God. It stands forever and always true, and you can follow it all the way to heaven. You won't have to do any revisions to your plans. The only question is, will you follow that? And to that end, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to follow Timothy because he's living out his faith in a way that's tangible. If you just model him, if you follow him, you're going to be following Jesus. You see, Timothy had accompanied Paul, and Paul had been with Jesus. It's that simple. And so there was a pattern. There was direction that was clear. That's why the godly influences that we have in our lives are so important. 
And that's why ungodly influences in your lives are also so dangerous. Because if you have a pattern that's Christ, and you're trying to live that pattern here, and you have a pattern that's not Christ, and you become confused about which pattern to follow, and you begin to follow the wrong one, eventually you have a building that does not look like Jesus. You want to follow godly patterns. Godly examples, godly blueprints, if you will. And for this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. Notice what he says, my ways in Christ. He doesn't say my methodology in ministry. He's very clear here, extremely descriptive. Basically follow him because he's following my ways in Christ. As I teach everywhere in every church. Paul had one set of objectives and one set of goals. And this is a common theme throughout all of Scripture. Even Jesus himself, what did he say? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He didn't say, take my yoke upon me and and learn of anyone else. He said, learn of me. Follow me. Emulate me. That's actually what the word disciple means. It means follower. It means a precise follower. It can mean apprentice. It means studying under the tutelage of someone else. It means taking someone who's already a journeyman, a professional, and walking with them wherever they go. One of the keys to learning almost any trade is being apprenticed by someone who is really good at that skill. And you follow them around, and wherever they go, you go with them, and whatever they do, you do with them. And you ask them questions. And you see, how is it that you do that? I'll never forget the first time that I saw a compound miter saw, and we were cutting crown molding, and I had never done that before, and I realized it had to be flipped upside down and backwards and cut completely reverse from how it was going to look on the front side, and I'm like, what do you mean? It's got to be upside down and backwards. If you cut it upside down and backwards, it'll be upside down and backwards, and not if you flip it over when you put it up. You see, the only way you would know something like that is not by looking at the finished product, but by following someone who's done it before. You follow the leader. You follow the blueprint. You follow the example. You go with someone who's already done it. Paul would write to the church at Philippi. He says, pattern, I urge you, fellow brothers and sisters, believers, to follow my example with enthusiasm, perseverance, and maturity. He says, pattern your lives after mine. He would write to the Thessalonian church, imitate both us and the Lord, and you yourselves will then be an example. So he's saying, look, the the pattern is clear. It's Christ. Follow someone who follows Christ. Listen to someone who speaks the words of Christ. And you'll never go far wrong. And so he tells them, look, what kind of example are you? 
You see, our goal is to present Christ to the world, right? The best way to do that is by being as close to Jesus as we can possibly be. And the way that we do that is exactly what the book of Romans says in chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we study God's word, as we know God's word, as we can then act God's word out in our lives, as we become doers of the word, then people get to see a little glimpse of Jesus. You get to be living epistles to that end. Paul finishes this up by reminding us to keep keep the whole thing real. Keep it real. There's a lot of people. You, you've probably met people. They can talk a Christian story like nobody's business. Amen? You know what I'm saying? All praise the Lord, brother. You know exactly what I'm getting at. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a Christian. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And you look at their Bible and you can tell it's never been opened. If your Bible's too clean, there's something wrong. After you, after you read your Bible a bunch, you notice how it gets fat and you can't quite close it anymore. Now, of course, I'm just messing with you. But there are a lot of people that fit in this category, verse 18. Now, some are puffed up. What causes things to be puffed up? Air. Hot air. Humidity. It's not humility. It's air. It's meaningless air. Things that are puffed up, though they look good and they taste good, often are not good for you. Amen? Give you an example. Cotton candy. You look at that. It goes by at the Dodger game. You're like, yeah. Churros. I know. I just like dealt a death blow to half of you. The reason they taste so good is they're full of air and sugar and fat, lard. They're, they're the good stuff. Yeah, exactly. But if you make your meal out of cotton candy and churros, there's going to be issues. You see, there's a lot of things that when you you bite into them, all of a sudden you find there's no substance. It's just air. As though I were not coming to you, the Apostle Paul had planted this church and he told them he was coming back and there were people saying, ah, he's not coming back. He was just in it for the money. And Paul comes back and he says, yeah, we were in it for the money. That's why we're homeless. And he says, I'm coming again and I will come to you shortly. Remember, he writes this letter, uh, not from Corinth, but from across the, the GNC. In Ephesus, if the Lord wills, I will know, but not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. He says, I'll be able to tell, 
because there'll be substance to the ministry. There'll be something actually happening that has kingdom value. He says in verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. There are a lot of people who can talk about the kingdom of God, but that they live out the kingdom of God. When was the last time you saw that person take a step of faith? When when was it they got out of their comfort zone and stepped into some zone where they needed God? Being a big talker is one thing, but having and living out God's power is quite something else. There are a lot of people who can talk it, but not quite so many live it. You want to follow people who live it. A godly life reflects God's power. A lot of people who know the right words. And all too frequently I sit down, especially with broken-hearted ladies who, yeah, I was dating this guy and, you know, he told me about, you know, his Bible and, you know, how he'd been to church and he didn't qualify with 20 years ago. You know, yeah, he professed to be a Christian. He even had a bumper sticker. But the first date, he wanted exactly what all the other non-Christian guys wanted. You see, the Word of God does something to your life. It changes you. It molds you into the image of Jesus. You can tell someone who's really walking with the Lord by their changed life. Now, it may not be completely changed. It may not be completely transformed. It may still be a deeply rooted work in process. But there's a reality to it that's tangible. In verse 21, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? He's saying, do you really want a beat down? And the answer is, of course we don't. None of us do. Or in love and the spirit of gentleness. He said, look, barring any divine intervention, I I, want to come and speak to you. I'd like to come and just love on you. And this is one of those places where very often as a pastor, it's like, here's what I'd really like to be able to say, but until we cut through all the, the hot air, until we cut through all the things that are obviously not okay with God, we can't get to the let me just love on you part. It's like I need to kind of, sorry, but this is what a shepherd does. Sometimes you've got to whack the sheep if they're in the wrong pasture. And so Paul says, look, the choice is yours. If you want to make this easy on yourself, follow the Lord. So when I come, we can just talk about the love of God. We can talk about the good things that God's doing in your life. Or maybe we can work through some of the difficulties that you're going through. Paul said, look, I, 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 I pray that my life matches up to the standards that I'm teaching. And I pray that you'll understand these things. Because I want you to follow Jesus. I don't want to scold. I don't want to punish. 
But the necessary changes are necessary changes. And when the church stops receiving the necessary changes from the Lord, we're in trouble. And maybe none of you have your attitude corrected by God, but I do. There are times when I just simply think the wrong way. I look at stuff. I was watching, you know, I, I was looking at a couple of video clips about what's going on in Israel today, and this is an example of this. And I found myself getting worked up. It's like, yeah, go bomb them, Israel, you know. So I just, you know, I, I, I would I'd admit it fully. I'm like, you're God's chosen people, and just, you know, just, and, and it was like there were no human beings on the other end. And I had to repent. I'm like, Lord. There might have been innocent people in harm's way on the other end of those bombs. And for a moment, I forgot about them in the process of understanding what the end times look like. As a pastor, I realize Ezekiel 38 and 39 clearly says, in the very last days, there's going to be a consortium of nations. Those nations will include Iran and Syria. And Israel is going to be attacked from the north. Guess what's north of Israel? Syria. Guess who's part of that? Gog and Magog. Guess who's in Syria right now? Gog and Magog. And so I'm like, oh, this is it, Lord, bomb them. I'm like, yeah, but there's innocent people that are going to hell, and they don't know Jesus. And for a moment, I lost sight of the gospel being preached to lost people because I was so focused on the eschatological implications of these sorties being flown by the IDF Air Force. That's an example of how we have to always default back to the Word of God. What's God's heart towards those Iranians who likely lost their lives today that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance? And so I had to adjust my thinking a little bit to go, Lord, if you could just blow up some tanks and some missiles and maybe some bunkers, but could you save those people so that they could find Jesus? You see, I had to rethink it for a second. We have to get back to the place to where God can speak into our lives all the time. Even when we already think as I did today, wow, this could be it. I can quote you chapter and verse. I can tell you, man, I, this is Scripture coming alive. Which is true, it is. But it does not take away the purpose of the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming in the first place, which is that men could be saved. So we can't Lose one for the other. We keep sight of the whole word. Everything it says, we have to keep it real in that sense. And that takes humility. You've got to be able to say, man, I was wrong. I, I, Lord, I misrepresented you in how I even thought about that. I'd be willing to, to say, God, I'm sorry. Because I want the Lord to treat me with mercy and gentleness, and kindness. I, I want his meekness to come out. I don't want him to deal with me harshly. That's exactly why Jesus said, you be careful how you judge. For with the measure that you measure others, with the judgment you judge others, you yourself shall also be judged. 
I want to judge people with mercy and grace, tenderness and gentleness and kindness and meekness and self-control because I need that in my own life. And so let's keep it real and let's keep Jesus the main thing. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Can have some of the pastors come forward, be available. Now, here's the deal. Don't be bummed. I hope I didn't whack anybody too hard because I was mainly preaching to myself. But we want to be examples of Jesus. We want to follow people who are examples of Jesus. We want the world to know about Jesus. And so as we give ourselves to that end, we have to be willing to say, Lord, change me first. Deal with me, God. Change my heart. Father, thank you for your amazing grace, your wonderful care, your kindness towards us as sinners that while we were yet sinning, actively engaged and going the wrong way, you came after us, Lord. You called us out of this world and into your marvelous light. You delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Upon us, the great light has shone. And Lord, we want to walk in your ways all of our days. And we want to be examples worthy of being followed. So Lord, where we have little quirks, where we have faults and failures and weakness, God, would you change and transform those areas of our lives so that we are worthy of the name that we bear. Lord, that you would call us Christians. Allow us to be identified with you. Little Christs, Christians. It was derogatory, Lord, because people thought that Christians were weak. Lord, if that's what it means to be a follower, then make us weak. Lord, keep us humble, moldable, and shapeable. We bless your name. We thank you for being good to us, Lord. And we surely don't want you to come with the rod, so help us to be worthy of gentleness. Let our lives reflect you. In Jesus' name, amen.